You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hello and welcome to Belabored Episode 75. Today we'll hear from workers from around the country calling for a $15 an hour wage as home care, child care, university, and even construction workers joined the Fight for 15 actions this Wednesday. But first, the news. We've talked a lot about global austerity policies here on Belabored, but maybe not enough recently. Suffice it to say that if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably aware that austerity isn't just a problem here at home. Not too far from to the north, our friends in the Canadian province of Quebec are causing a ruckus over their government's austerity policies once again. I covered the 2012 student strikes, including right here at Dissent, where the province's massive student unions democratically voted to strike, shut down their universities, and eventually scored a victory against the provincial government after months of huge protests. This year, once again, the students have been striking, demonstrating, and at this recording, some of them are even occupying the office of the president of Concordia University. A statement from one student union spokesperson explains, Often we are asked why we, the students, are mobilizing ourselves against austerity measures. For us, the answer seems clear. The government is trying, through its repeated compressions, to place the entirety of our public services in permanent crisis. The financial objective of this government is that we turn more towards the private sector and establish a user-payer model in Quebec. In rendering our services non-functional due to inadequate financing, the solution of the government will be to raise individual fees. I should note that that's translated by our friends at the Language and Dissent blog, which translates important articles from the Francophone media in Quebec into English so that more people can read what's going on with the student strikes. And I will place a link at the Dissent website. The students aim to create solidarity with public sector workers to push back on the entire system of austerity. There have been tensions within the student ranks, debate over whether they should press on for a social strike May 1st or wait until the fall when public sector unions may also go out. There's also been an incredibly heavy-handed, violent response by the police, which I'm sure will shock everyone listening to Belabored. In one dramatic moment, a student hit in the face with a tear gas canister returned the next day to take the lead of a march, her bruised and swollen face a signal of defiance. In another, a line of professors stepped between students and riot police to defuse what was expected to be yet another violent assault. It is way too early to tell what all the results of this will be, but we will try to keep you posted and also to do a better job of keeping up with anti-austerity movements around the world. So it seems like the latest controversy around Wall Street is actually coming straight from Main Street. A group of Wells Fargo workers rallied on Monday to voice opposition to what they see as predatory banking practices, and their criticism comes not from the perspective of borrowers victimized by loan fraud, though that certainly is part of their concern, it's coming from the workers who are behind the teller window. They are calling out the company for perpetuating bad working conditions, policies that uh, prevent them from actually uh, providing decent, uh, fair advice to their clients, and um, a general culture of abuse and constant pressure that makes it really difficult for workers on the inside to be whistleblowers and hold their employer accountable. 
We've heard a lot about whistleblowers in the upper echelons of the finance industry, and this is an interesting twist on that. It's combining this with the labor movement and looking at the rank-and-file workers at banks who are definitely in a position to uh, look at the belly of the beast from the inside and look at how these pernicious uh, practices end up exploiting ordinary people on the ground. In a new report by the Center for Popular Democracy and a group called the Committee on Better Banks, the bank workers say that they are pressured to track people toward high-risk credit schemes that might erode the wealth of the community and lead to all sorts of damaging economic knock-on effects. Wall Street is less interested in these low-margin services, uh, retail banking services like, you know, regular old checking accounts and whatnot. They're more interested in high finance and sort of the, the high rollers of the industry. And, of course, when it comes to retail banking, they prefer, uh, you know, higher-yield products like credit cards, high-cost mortgages, and other sort of predatory financial instruments. So the Center for Popular Democracy researchers state that these practices are known to prompt predatory banking practices that have a negative impact on consumers, the economy, and the workers forced to push them on their communities. And this hard sell on risky credit schemes ends up being accompanied by a general withdrawal of basic retail services so that, you know, maybe in your neighborhood, which is low income uh, and dealing with all sorts of foreclosure issues and payday lending and all that, um, you might not even be able to find a place that will open up an ordinary checking account for you or a savings account. So um, it just so happens that these bad financial practices go hand in hand with bad labor practices. And it turns out that the turnover at retail bank branches is rampant, averaging, according to the report, between 15 and 30 percent, sometimes as high as 40 percent. They are stuck on low wage scales and heaped with enormous amounts of stress every day. And the poor consumers they serve, meanwhile, are further deprived of financial professionals who are in a secure place where they can provide sound financial advice and offer sustained guidance to the community because there's no sustained workforce uh, in the communities that most need this financial help. So all this leads to a cycle of inequality that hits uh, both labor and uh, consumers in these neighborhoods, and the Wells Fargo workers are hoping to help stoke a national movement in which rank-and-file bank workers are calling out their employers and working with consumers on the ground to make sure that everybody has access to fair financial services and, you know, maybe one day banks won't be so evil. This Monday, the workers at the Pico Rivera California Walmart were informed that their store would be closing that day. They were given about five hours' notice that they would have to reapply for their jobs if and when the store reopened, expected to be in about six months or so. The official story from Walmart is that this is a plumbing problem, though the same mysterious plumbing problem apparently exists at Walmart stores in Florida, Texas, and Oklahoma. But the Pico Rivera store in particular has been home to some of the most significant actions by workers organizing with our Walmart, from the first strikes at a Walmart retail store back in 2012 to last year's dramatic sit-down strike last fall. So is there a connection? Walmart says no. But a local reporter interviewed the city's public works director who said officials had not been notified of plumbing issues at the store and that the store would have to pull permits before undertaking extensive work, presumably the kind of extensive work that would require the store to be closed for six months. 
What's more, Walmart has a history of, well, it has closed stores in Jean-Pierre, Quebec, when the workers voted to unionize, and shuttered an entire department to avoid union activity. When nine meat cutters in a Palestine, Texas super center actually won an NLRB election, Walmart eliminated meat cutting throughout all of its stores. The Pico Rivera workers immediately protested and planned to continue to do so, demanding that they be transferred to other area stores, that they be compensated throughout the process, and that they be reinstated without having to reapply when their store reopens. We will keep you posted on what happens. And in New York City, retail workers just can't get a break, literally. And now the Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, is doing something about it. The New York State Attorney General is building off of his populist street cred in tackling Wall Street giants, and he's going after retail employers in the city who force their workers into erratic, precarious work schedules and leave them economically insecure and help destabilize one of the fastest-growing workforces in the city and in the country. As we've discussed numerous times in this podcast, the so-called on-call scheduling system, which is roughly analogous to the factory speed-up of yesteryear, forces workers to always be available for work, even if they only work a few hours a week, puts them under constant pressure to uh, you know, be there at the drop of a hat, and leaves them uh, you know, with these incredibly unstable hours, or they might go from 30 hours one week to zero the next week. And so Schneiderman is uh, demanding an end to these abusive practices, and he sent letters last Friday to some household names in the retail industry, Gap, Abercrombie & Fitch, Target, J.Crew, Sears, TJX, and seven other retailers, uh, demanding disclosure of their records on the use of on-call hours. And this is coming on the heels of public scrutiny of unfair scheduling practices for part-timers at big employers, ranging from Starbucks to Walmart. And there may be some legislative action on the horizon as workers get more organized trying to call out employers on these uh, damaging practices. Uh, Some uh, local politicians are getting involved and uh, doing things like what San Francisco did. They passed a retail workers' bill of rights that imposes restrictions on employers so that they can't jerk around workers' schedules or cut their hours arbitrarily. And, um, you know, all this is about restoring fairness in the workplace and making sure that workers are not just given fair wages but are given predictable schedules so that their entire lives are not consumed by work that ultimately only pays them for a fraction of the time that they end up devoting uh, uh, to that job. So, um, you know, in New York City, things may start to lift up a little bit for retail workers, and that could have a ripple effect across the country. And who knows, maybe one of these days, uh, the uh, big behemoth stores like Walmart and uh, and uh, the big chains like Starbucks will be held to account, not just by public pressure, but um, under the uh, letter of the law. This week on Tax Day, tens of thousands of protesters turned out for demonstrations and direct actions to demand $15 an hour and union rights for the country's low-wage employees. While the movement has been going on for more than two years now, Wednesday's mobilization demonstrated how widely the banner of Fight for 15 has spread since it started with a fast food worker strike back in late 2012. Now the movement, backed by the SEIU union, has grown to include not just fast food workers, 
though they remain in many ways the figureheads of the campaigns, uh, but it also encompasses other kinds of marginalized workers, ranging from Walmart retail workers to uh, unionized home health aides. And even adjunct professors have joined the fray as the so-called precariat of academia. They've begun organizing around a demand for 15000 per course, which is analogous, I guess, to the uh, $15 an hour in the academic world. And they were all out in force in cities across the country, including New York City and Atlanta, where me and Sarah were, respectively, on Wednesday, uh, reporting from the ground. And so we're going to hear some voices of some of the protesters and uh, also follow that with a discussion on where the movement might go from here and what's been achieved so far. And at the protest at uh, Columbus Circle in Manhattan, I heard SEIU home care worker Agnes Maitland speaking at the podium about her struggles on $10 an hour. And I talked to Ursuline, uh, one of the protesters in the crowd. She is a home care worker um, who works near the rally, actually. And uh, she talked about her struggles. And Eugene Allen, a security guard with, and 32BJ shop steward, uh, also turned out in solidarity with the fast food and precarious workers across the city. Who will be trained to cook, clean, 
and they have to feed their families and share amongst one another and their families. This is a trade job that should be paying better wages. And uh, right now, what's, uh, what's up with your union? How are, you, is, is, uh, are you in contract talks right now? We are the Local 32 DJ. We're in contract talks for a new contract and a raise in 2016. Okay. And what are your key demands right now? What is, or you're asking for a full $15 an hour? In my trade, we're fighting for social and economic justice. Okay, We are fighting for these fast food workers because they demand respect. They don't need to be harassed by their bosses and the cost of living wage. What do you think it takes uh, per hour? Is $15 even enough for this city? People say even that's a little low. $15 an hour is a disgrace. This is America. This is the land of the free. We must be respected. Stop rejecting these people because the, the bus fares went up. How can you afford to even get to work? Hello from sunny Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm doing more reporting for my book. While I was here, I joined the Fight for 15 rallies on Wednesday with Atlanta workers and sat down with Marty Hill, a home care worker, Don O'Neill, a teaching assistant, and Antoine Brown, a fast food worker, who are all part of the campaign. Told me about what it's like organizing in a state with a tiny union presence and how their movement connects to other movements for justice. Hi, my name is Marty Hill, and I'm a health care worker. I live in Loganville. I've been in the health care field for over 15 years. My name is Dawn O'Neill, and I work at a child care center here in Atlanta. My name is Antoine Brown. I work at Long John Silver. Recently at Popeye's and the Cookout. I've been working fast food for 15 years. So... You guys have all been up since 6 o'clock this morning. 4 o'clock. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So it's, it's a long day here. Yes, yes, it is. It's a long day. So I guess, again, I'm just going to ask you to go around and tell me how you got involved in the Fight for 15. Um, you guys don't have a, a home care workers union down here, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, my name is Marty, and how I got involved in the um, Fight for 15, I started to see it on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And it was popping up, and then there were about six states that were approved an uh, increase on wages. And I said, I want to be a part of that. So I started signing up, signing up, and the next thing I know, Helen was knocking on my door, and she said, you sign up for the fight for 15? I said, yes. And she said, I'm here to get you acclimated. And I said, what do I need to do? Because I, I, I'm just serious about this. Yeah. Uh, when you go and you work hard for your wages, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, the paycheck don't meet the obligation, and you're caring for people, loved ones, while they go into career fields, mm-hmm. and uh, when we get off, we don't have enough to take care of our family. So I wanted to see a change in my lifetime, yeah. and whatever it takes. That's why I'm here fighting for 15 in a year. And when was that? I had started this trail uh, six months ago, although right. it's been a road on the road for over two years, yeah. and you'll hear about that lately. But I've been in six months, and we have covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Yeah. 
I got into the Fight for 15 because I am part of a group called Rise Up. And we work a lot on um, police brutality issues. I've done a lot of protests and marches involving the police killings that's been going on across the country. And I've worked with Malini. And one day, Joel texts me. And he said, Dawn, we're having a rally at McDonald's. Would you like to come out? And I was like, yeah, okay. I'm thinking that it's part of, you know, what we were doing. And when I got there, they had the signs, Fight for 15, and I hadn't heard about it. And I was like, well, what's going on? And it was like, well, this is for um, workers to get higher pay. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll come out and support Joel. Okay, okay. And then I started hearing more and more about it. And it went from fast food workers to home health care workers. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really good. When I saw child care workers, I was like, oh, man. Oh, I have to get in this. Yeah. I have to. I have no choice but to get in this. Um, I'm a teacher assistant. I make eight fifty an hour. Um, barely enough to survive. Thank God my children are grown and they're out the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not even enough for me just one person to live off of. I can't imagine trying to raise a family yeah. on 850. Yeah. I got into this fight because I've been doing it about two years, mm-hmm. two years now. Yeah. Really since day one. Yeah. Um, and I see the fight, it's a cause, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a just cause because, like I said, I've been in fast food all my life, and um, I haven't yet made equal pay, you know. I'm so tired of folks telling me it's my education or mm-hmm. um, or I don't want better, which is a lie, you know. Like both of y'all have said, we cannot survive ourselves 25, and I feel like everything is a circle from equal justice with the police to better wages to health care, all that is one. Yes. I mean, we're all suffering, and I refuse to be the type of person who would just sit here and don't say nothing because I have nothing to lose. My back against the wall, yeah. you know what I mean? So... I'm tired of sitting back, sitting here. I, I got to push back. I got to fight back. So that's why I'm here. And also, I also joined in the way of um, like my job, man. Mm-hmm. My job is, is is like a Scrooge, man. This type, this guy here would tell us, get food snacks. Um, we don't like what we, where we work at. Go work at McDonald's. And so really, man, I, I got on board, man, to let folks know the things that fast food workers are going through. Cause a lot of folks, a lot of people don't know. Like I didn't know the things that healthcare workers are going through. Mm-hmm. You know. I had no idea. You know, I I know it's it a tough job, but I know they're underpaid like the way they are. I thought y'all was making good money. You know, you would think so. You would think healthcare workers, teachers, people that really <laughs> I can't really explain the destruction of, of our lives is teachers and healthcare workers because children and old folks, and we all don't get a chance to be both. Yeah. You know, so I tip my hat off to the healthcare workers and and and, and anybody else who's in the struggle. Even even reporters who come out and give us a stage like this to speak, you know. Hopefully, like I said, hopefully the, the people who make decisions in our lives will hear this, you know, and make a change in our favor. Because obviously, our governor is not, you know. So yeah. And the next thing I like to say about this day, April fifteenth, that we're standing together as one, yeah. all low page 
workers, yes. wages. We're mobilizing this thing because, as he said, it's just not a one professional yes. or two professional. We have educators out here. We have people who are students, and they're wondering, how are we going to pay off this student loan money when we're just going to have jobs to go at seven twenty-five? And But they got high debt. They've done their four years. You know, our education ranges from all levels and degree. And as a healthcare worker, we are entrusted to your mothers, your fathers, your sisters, your brothers, your loved ones. And at the end of the day, this is a job that takes physical strength. We're their friends, we're their loved ones, we hear their cries, we take care of their aches and their pain. We're the healthcare workers that deserve a raise. Now keep in mind, the company, the agency, is getting $25, $35 per hour, but they're paying their workers $750, $850, $950, and we cannot survive on that. Because at the end of the day, if something happened to your loved ones, we are held accountable. Yes. To me, it's a, it's another form of slavery, man. Mentality. And, and, and it's, it's right now, it's it's a better form of slave for the one for the ones that's benefiting. Because back in the day, you actually had to feed the slaves and house the slaves. <laughs> these, these days, you ain't got to house us. You ain't got to feed us, and we ain't running away. So it's modern day slavery, man. And I'm. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. Cause I'm a, I'm an American man, and you can't deny me and say I don't deserve a piece of the pie because of where I work at, because of my education, or because of the color of my skin, or anything above. You know what I mean? So I don't believe in that. I believe everybody's American. We all have, we all we all have a right towards the American dream. You know. What about this story? A couple weeks ago, right here in the ATL, over at Ebenezer Baptist Church, I met the original sanitation workers from 50 years ago. The minimum wage was $1.25. It is 50 years later, and the minimum wage is $7.25. You mean in 50 years that as an American, we could only get $6? Where a, is the justice on that? It's, a, it's our lobbyists. It come down to our lobbyists, man. Like, if you go overseas to other countries, and the same corporations over here in the states telling us that they can't afford to give us yes. more than seven twenty-five, but yet they can go overseas and get pay other pay other other employees eighteen dollars, fifteen dollars, seventeen dollars. Yeah, but it, it, it's a, it's a hush. They don't talk about that. Right. Now I mean, all they want to talk about over here in the states they can't afford to give us what we just. Now I mean, yes. it's not fair. When we look at these positions, most of these positions are held by black and brown people. Black and Hispanic people hold these positions. And so, and we're the lowest paid. And so look at our communities and what it's it's not only doing to our families, but our communities as a whole. We don't have that economic empowerment in our communities. And I was telling someone earlier, like we're marching and and we're yelling and we're screaming because of the injustice with the police department and the killings of, well, we would have a stronger voice if we had economic empowerment in our community Mm -hmm. because then we would have the power to back up that voice we can scream we can march all day long but until we boycott nothing is going to be done until we take the money 
away from them, nothing can be done. And so we need a stronger economic base, and that's what we're asking for. We would have safer communities, I believe. We would have stronger families. And so it all goes hand in hand. We have to go back to the basic. It's called taking our streets back. We, as healthcare workers, educators, teacher, fast food workers, we do matter. We do yes. count. We're going to see you all at the poll, yes. and we're going to turn this thing around. Politicians, we're coming for you. So that's a good segue into what I was going to ask next. So the, you know, a lot of people who don't come down to the South very often say workers in the South don't want unions. They don't want their workers don't organize. They don't care. They just, you know, they, it's not their thing. So what do you say to that? We say it's a chain. Change is coming. We do need a union because before, you know, uh, you hear people just say the South is a good old boy state. Well, that's too much fat, and uh, I don't like diet sodas, so we're going to make a change. We need 15 in a union. I'm originally from up north, and I've always, my, my, both of my parents were in the healthcare field, and they were 1199 members, uh -huh. and I remember just the help that they had. Yeah. I remember the fight. Um, with, with the AIDS and mm -hmm. um, nurses right. that were being exposed to the virus. And I remember my mom fighting with 1199 mm -hmm. to have the healthcare workers protected. So I know the things that the unions can do. So I'm so happy yeah. that we're doing this and we're fighting for a union because they'll protect us, they'll back us. I think that we need unions in the South. I think workers will be protected. By it is so unions. necessary. What else should people know about what's going on in Atlanta right now? What they uh, should realize, this is our cry today. But what's going to ensure you that your cry won't be tomorrow? Yes. Without a union, you're not secure. The wages are not going forward. The pay structure has changed. How they say, who moved my cheese? The pay structure has changed. Yeah. It's funny that we're sitting here and we're going through this. I was just thinking about my parents and my grandparents, and they were in the fight, the same fight 50 years ago, the same exact fight and we're here today. Now I'm the next generation and going through this fight. I don't want my kids to have to be 30, 40 years old and it be another fight. I want to end it. I don't want it to keep going on and going on. And we have to keep going back to the table for the same thing. So would you say that the time has changed? What has made the cycle go backwards? What do you think made the cycle go backwards? Why are we having this fight now? I think it, the pay, it has to go back to the pay. It has to go back to being paid what we're worth. People have to work three jobs sometimes just to make ends meet. And so you don't have the time that 
you could with your family because you're constantly trying to work just to take care of the family. So you don't have that time to spend with your child, leading them and guiding them. And you see the youth are falling off because we're not spending time with them because we have to work just to feed them. We're trying to keep a roof over their head. Yes. I heard a chant earlier today. Yeah. And I like part of what it said. We're not here to make a scene. We just want 15. We want 15. We're not asking for to give us anything because we don't mind working. We work hard. As you hear, we work two, three jobs just to keep a roof over our heads. We want justice. We want pay. We want rights. We want to not worry about our health care because we're walking into situations that we're lifting people three and four hundred pounds. Your loved ones. Help us. We are your sisters. We're your brothers. We're your aunts. We're your mothers. When you see us, take a stand with us. Honk your horns. We want 15. That was Marty Hill, Don O'Neill, and Antoine Brown from Atlanta, Georgia. So hello from Atlanta, Georgia. It is, uh, well, it's not quite sunny today. It's kind of misty and uh, whatever, but we did not get rained on yesterday that much, which was a significant victory. I counted, I credited all the worker power. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm I'm in the South for, was here for the big fast food strikes, which is kind of fun to see what it's like somewhere that does not have a huge union presence. Um, it was pretty good. There was a lot of student support. There was a lot of support from community groups, from like the NAACP, from Black Lives Matter, including a contingent from West Charleston, South Carolina, where um, Walter Scott was just recently killed. So that was a particularly interesting moment. And one of the things down here is that a lot of the, the home care workers and child care workers have been joining the protests, um, like you heard the, the workers that we just interviewed. A lot of the ones that have been joining the protests around the country are already SEIU members. These ones are not. So down here, the home care workers are not organized. These child care workers are not organized. So these are non-union so they're extra screwed. And that is a really good thing to come out of this, right, is that they're organizing actually on our organized workers in a bunch of sectors to come out to protest. So um, that was pretty cool. And the workers were pretty stoked. They shut down a McDonald's. They shut down a Walmart for a little bit. It was a good time. So how was mm-hmm. New York? It was, uh, well, I have to say it was, uh, it was sort of an extension of the previous waves of protests that we've seen. Um, here in New York, uh, there was a huge turnout of the home care workers, but, um, you know, yeah. as you might imagine, um, SEIU has, um, uh, has about half of the home care workforce here in New York City uh, unionized, and so, um, you know, they, they could, uh, that was a pretty big turnout, but it was actually, um, listening to them talk about their working conditions, even as union workers, was actually fairly Surprising. Oh yeah. And, and, oh yeah. Um, that, you know they're still toiling at ten dollars an hour. I mean, yeah. I'm sure when most of them started, it was like, 
less than $5 now because <laughs> a lot of them have been working for 20, 30 years. But um, it's, yeah. uh, it's amazing how how much of a long haul this is. And it got me thinking about, you know, by most measures, you know, two and a half years for a single campaign is sounds pretty long to us, but a lot of these mm-hmm. fights take years and years and years and multiple contract negotiation rounds to actually yield something meaningful and concrete and lasting for workers. Yeah, I mean, that's the the thing, right, is that, like, there was, I think, some frustration among the the SEIU member um, home care workers that there was all this energy being put into the fight for 15 and they were not part of it before. And so I think that their joining the movement did come from sort of grassroots demand that they were like, hey, we want in. So, and there's a huge turnout from other unions, too, at the Columbus Circle Rally. It was, I was actually looking for fast food workers. <laughs> it was mostly union members. You know, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm always reminded that New York is a union town. Uh, you might New not York imagine is it. a union town. Yeah. 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 The only actual union members I think that I saw, no, that's not true. There were CWA and there were um, the Teamsters, including our former guest, Ben Spate. And yeah, I think that's it, obviously of SEIU, but they don't actually have a very big presence down here because we're in the South. But yeah, I mean, the the workers and, you know, I spoke to one of the organizers from this campaign here who's like, you know, he's like, the workers down here would love to have unions. It is not true that they are just more anti-union than the rest of the country. So, you know, take that for what it's worth as anecdotal evidence, but still true. Were the home care workers actually trying to affiliate with any union like SEIU or were they were they working with a union in an active campaign? I mean, they're working with the Fight for 15, which is, of course, right. right, supported by SEIU. But as far as I know, I don't think they're in the middle of a particular union drive. I think they're organizing as part of the Fight for 15 because I think the theory down here may well be that you're more likely to get a law raising the minimum wage than you are to get a union victory, which may be true. It may not be true. Um, I don't know. <laughs> that is that is the question. But, you know, Atlanta, at least the city, you know, is Democratic controlled. There were some state legislators there yesterday who spoke about introducing a bill for 15 in the state legislature, which, of course, is not going to get through this state legislature anytime soon. They tried to ban picketing a couple of years ago. But um, and that was defeated. So, you know, there is there is hope. God, that, it's a, it's a yeah. really tough slog, even in New York City for $15. Right? Well, New York so. City, right, the problem is we can't get it through yeah. the state. Yeah. We would yeah. say the city would have raised the minimum wage a long time ago sure. if Andrew Cuomo, I don't know, but Andrew Cuomo might be getting a little bit closer to um, getting busted for corruption because they're they're about to bring down the uh, Senate leader up there. That's a whole other story. Anyway, but so back to... As you mentioned, yesterday's rallies, I mean, I was in Atlanta, so I'm bringing observations from somewhere else, but it does feel like a very similar thing every few months that that keeps happening, that they announce a big strike and a big day of action. They announce a different sector of workers are joining, right, that there is going to be more support. These are going to be bigger. It's going to be in more places. But it is starting to feel like it's losing its not its power, it's still very powerful to be out there, but like, you know, there was an article in the New York Times, Stephen Greenhouse, who has retired but not retired, wrote an article that was headlined, New Tactics, and I was like, I don't see any new tactics. I see new workers. I don't see new tactics. And that is something I'm wondering about as this goes forward. 
Right. And I think that may be one of, you know, both the promise and the peril of having a movement that is premised on being sort of spontaneous and grassroots, right? Um, and not, yeah. you know, a traditional union movement because, you know, when does the mainstream labor movement come up with like hugely new tactics? Not very often. And yet, right. because of this, they work with this, you know, these, these economies of scale in terms of being able to mobilize, you know, an entire workforce and, or shut down an entire industry in theory, yeah. right? Um, that's right. where their leverage comes from. But yeah, I mean, I, I, yes, I'm, I'm, it's interesting because when you don't have that existing infrastructure, how do you develop leverage, right? I mean, they have momentum and how do you translate that into actual right. being able to hold something over an employer? Right. Right, and as you mentioned, you mentioned spontaneous, but like this, this is anything but spontaneous, right? Yeah. This is this is anything but spontaneous. It is it's planned far ahead, which like it has to be because to turn out that many people is a heck of a lot of hard work that a lot of organizers are doing, uh, you know, are putting in very long days, making sure that they can get people to go out on strike. Um, but I'm also wondering, like, it gets harder to get workers to go out on strike when there isn't an immediate result. It gets, you know, to feel like here we're just doing the same thing. And, you know, I was struck by the the workers in Seattle who had won, right? And they were saying that when they talked to workers from other places, they were kind of, you know, they were frustrated because they had done the same things that the Seattle workers had done. And it's, it is hard because like Seattle had this magical combination of an election and sweeping in, um, not only a socialist city council member, but a progressive mayor that that made 15 part of his campaign. And that confluence of events hasn't happened anywhere else in the same way. And so it is hard to to keep that going. And so I'm I'm wondering if these this conversation that we're having now is also being had around, you know, organizing tables around the country on this and saying, like, OK, what can we do next to sort of bring back the disruptive oomph that this had in the early days when they didn't announce the strike beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. The morning of, you found out that this was going right. to happen. Right. Uh, I mean, if you, if and, you think back to the yeah. first the first strikes in 2012, right, those were, right. I mean, those are just out of the blue. I mean, and people are like, <laughs> the day after. Like, I mean, they weren't out of the blue because they had been working on it for a year. And oh, I knew yeah, they had yeah. been working on it. I was yeah. But the way, right, they did not, you know, they did not send out a press release two weeks before saying we're taking fast food workers out on strike in two weeks. They woke up that morning and they were out on picket lines at 6 a.m. And, you know, there was an article in Salon and the Atlantic. And that was it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, things don't have to be spontaneous in order to work. I'm just wondering where the, the escalation is going to be. Yeah, there's like a sort of an interplay here because, you know, maybe what you lack in, in numbers you can make up for in sort of disruptive impact, right? Um, but when you sort of start to fatigue on both of the, you know, when, when your numbers aren't huge, um, and, and you're starting to sort of lag in the spontaneity department, then, then what do you have, right? So. Yeah. I mean, you still have a, a ton of people coming out into the streets and making demands, and you still have, you know, I mean, well, Hillary Clinton did not come out and endorse $15 an hour yesterday, but she did, you know, tweet that, you know, workers shouldn't have to strike in order to make a decent wage. But I, you know, 
um, she was still on Walmart's board, so we'll see what yeah. happens there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm still hoping for competitive primaries because competitive primaries are good for democracy and quite possibly good for workers because a competitive primary is what made Ed Murray in Seattle endorse $15 an hour as a way to differentiate himself from the other Democrats who were running, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the $15 an hour stand is, is sort of, you know, it's, it's like, it's a clear, thing that, that people feel, at least in some contexts, such as Seattle, is, is winnable, right? So, uh, right. I mean, I think, you know, it, they, they kind of hit the sweet spot, I think, with at least the, the way they're framing the demand. It's just that, yeah, like, right, like the the, uh, the two main victories that they've been pointing to are sort of like the incremental wage hike at Walmart and, and also like um, the uh, the new sort of base wage announcement at McDonald's at like 10% right. of McDonald's restaurants. And so it's sort of like, all right. Okay, now we just have to keep doing this for another oh at this rate twelve years. I so I you know, at, at some point it'll yeah. it'll sort of the rubber will hit the road, I think. But um, you know. Um I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I was I was actually thinking I was doing some research on um the idea of organizing fast food workers on a grassroots level. Um this was I was looking at the experience in uh, New Zealand where they did something very similar you know, like five or six years ago. Um, and they were actually able to, they never uh, gained sort of majority representation, at, like union membership at these restaurants, but they were able to, through their leverage, because they did get some union representation, they did get collective agreements for the entire industry. And of course, you know, mm-hmm. obviously New Zealand is a very different place, right? But right. the fact that they could secure, the fact that they could secure something that worked for the entire, you know, workforce, even yeah. even as a minority union, right? Like that was that right. was something meaningful that they could point to. Yeah, and I think you know, I mean, not to to put everything on the shoulders of one group of workers, although it's certainly a growing group of workers as we saw yesterday. But you know, the labor movement is really struggling right now with what the next strategy is because you know, collective bargaining at this point is next to impossible to to sort of win victories that way, right? It's it's next to impossible to organize new workers through the NLRB format. The union-busting industry is just too good at stopping that these days, and the law has been weakened over and over and over again, and we've talked about this a million times, right? And so we're really in a moment where we need something new that brings in new energy because there's a ton of struggling workers out there there's a ton of people who are underemployed and unemployed who really need something that gives them, once again, some power over their lives and their work. And that the decline in union membership is not a decline in people who want and need union. Yeah, so I'm I'm still hopeful that, you know, I'm pleased that labor is putting money into the fight for 15. I'm pleased that labor is putting money into our Walmart. I hope these things continue. And I hope that they come up with new ways to make the owners of McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's and cheap, lousy, you know, home care agencies that rip off their employees and everybody else afraid of them. Because, I, you know, that's kind of how I think you win. Right. And I think the two actually, I mean, in terms of just the labor movement being sort of at an impasse or feeling adrift, and and I think the the, um, Fight for 15 you know, potentially plateauing. I think if you can sort of rejuvenate both of those efforts, they'll kind of have a synergy together because I think right. one of the things that, I, I mean, one of the reasons why organized labor is throwing so much weight behind 
this fight for 15 stuff is because it, in a way it does, you know, inspire a belief in what a union represents for workers, right? Because they're fighting just for union recognition. Like that's, that's the bare minimum. Yeah. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. The pieces we read recently that we wish we had written but did not. So what does Apple have to do with the prison system? We may be used to joking about this high-tech monopoly as a virtual tech dungeon of planned obsolescence, but we recently learned that the company has been perpetuating the very real prison industrial complex at, uh, in Cupertino, California. The company was recently called out on its policy of barring workers with felony convictions from working at the construction site of its new corporate campus. Apple was quickly called out on this policy and ended up rescinding it shortly thereafter as a sort of gesture of corporate social responsibility. But in reality, Apple is just one of the higher profile culprits of an economic structure that seeks to uh, exploit people with criminal convictions basically in all uh, arenas of life, whether you're looking for an apartment or looking for a new job. And uh, my pick for this week is Elias Isquith and his interview with Nicole Porter of the Sentencing Project at Salon.com. And in his introduction, uh, Isquith explains, the truth is that rules barring people convicted of felonies like the one Apple rescinded are all too common and may represent one of the biggest impediments that formerly incarcerated people confront as they try to build themselves a new life. If American society is going to seriously tackle the problem of mass incarceration and the pattern of exclusion and dislocation it can create, laws and norms that allow the semi-permanent ostracizing of this population will have to change, unquote. So he speaks with uh, Nicole Porter, Director of Advocacy at the Sentencing Project, which has long been advocating for the rights of the incarcerated, both uh, inside and outside of prisons. Um, she explains that the problem with such policies is that they essentially lead people into a self-fulfilling prophecy of um, disadvantage. <clears throat> they uh, are essentially tracking people into being punished for the rest of their lives long after they get out from behind bars by barring them from job opportunities, education, and even living in public housing in some cases. So this pattern actually um, perpetuates inequality. Um, inside and outside the prison industrial complex, and it has an especially pernicious effect on uh, poor communities of color, since those are the communities uh, disproportionately targeted by the criminal justice system at every level, from uh, you know police stops and frisks here in this city um, to uh, you know uh, mass incarceration. So Porter explains that because of these automatic uh, bans in employment and in other areas of civic life, housing bans in the uh, private and public markets, public benefit bans federally and in the states, a larger number a large number of people brought under criminal justice supervision can be automatically excluded without any individualized conversation. So if that's not the definition of collective punishment, I do not know what it is. So this in turn also aggravates all the racial and economic disparities, not to mention uh, the 
huge uh, patterns of recidivism that we see uh, for people coming out of the criminal justice system because a lack of a job leads people either perhaps back to self-destructive activities or to resort to potentially illegal means to scrape by or just puts them in a position where they're likely to get uh, swept up by the cops again. So according to the National Employment Law Project, there are now 65 million people in the country living with a criminal record, and those people experience marginalization whenever they seek employment. And that means that bosses are basically categorically excluding them once they maybe, you know, check off a box or, uh, you know, undergo a criminal background check and uh, their past record comes up. So um, Porter uh, provides a pretty astute analysis of how this... uh, you know, spread of the criminal justice system is actually a labor issue. And it has to do with, quote, how criminal justice enforcement, particularly under the war on drugs and other policies that exacerbate racial disparity, align, if not intersect, with historical conversations around civil rights and structural issues that contribute to racial inequality for certain communities, particularly the African-American and Latino communities. So what to make of this? Well, it all has to do with uh, perpetuating inequality and leading to a massive drain on the wealth of communities of color, which, of course, um, is manifested in the huge wealth gap that we see across society that polarizes along racial lines. This vicious cycle is often not talked about when we think about the causes of income inequality. And sadly, our labor policies and civil rights protections still, uh, you know, even in and of themselves, end up marginalizing uh, people with criminal convictions the same way society as a whole does. And it perpetuates the cycle in which people are blamed for their own supposed failure to get ahead or to break out of a so-called criminal lifestyle. So by individualizing the problems of poverty, uh, it seems like we fail to understand the structural um, patterns of disadvantage. And if you've been watching what's been going on in the economy overall uh, over the past generation, especially since the Great Recession, you'll see the exact same tendency to blame the poor for their own plight and to uphold this uh, damaging neoliberal vision of individualism uh, and uh, you know, individual actors being in control of their own destiny. And I guess that's what brings us back to the Apple headquarters. It's this beautiful brand that makes everyone feel like they're at the vanguard of the universe when they indulge in consumerism. And we honor these uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs as the uh, great, you know, job creators of the economy. And we honor technology as the answer to every social problem. And while this notion is very commercially appealing, uh, it does come at the expense of a collective consciousness and a broader sense of social responsibility. And that leaves folks like the construction workers uh, out there in California shut out of the gated community of privilege that Silicon Valley seeks to build. So my ARG for this week is frequent ARG recipient and friend of the show Bryce Covert's piece for Equal Pay Day at The Nation, Education Alone Won't Put an End to Equal Pay Days. Equal Pay Day, of course, is the day where the average woman would have caught up with what a man made last year. So how many extra days a woman has to work to achieve pay parity? Um, So it's become a bit of a thing in the last few years. Uh, Women's groups have justifiably made a point of it. 
So often, when workers complain of being underpaid, the pat answer or Twitter trolling is that they should just get more education, leaving aside the assumption that anyone can just go enroll in college and find a way to pay for it when they're already struggling economically. We've pointed out more than once on this podcast that education simply isn't going to fix the problem when the problem is low pay, high unemployment, productivity decoupled from wages, and bosses who have very little incentive to give you a raise. As Bryce notes, quote, the gender wage gap still shows up at every education level. Go to work after graduating high school and you'll earn less than a male high school graduate. Go to work after graduating college, earn less than a male college grad. Even when a young childless woman graduates the same college with the same major into the same job as a man, she'll still earn less. Perhaps most galling is that the, the gap is widest at the highest levels of achievement. Women with high school educations earn 75% of what high school educated men earn, but women with graduate degrees earn 69.1% of what men with those degrees earn. Equal pay for workers of color faces the same problem, and indeed, of course, we should point out that equal pay day for black women comes sometime this summer and for Latina women in the fall. Instead, Bryce notes, we will have to change the power imbalance in our country. That's because America today, she writes, has become a country of calcified, stratified classes that are nearly impossible to move between, given that the rich keep accumulating more and more for themselves at the tippy-top. An important portion of the problem is not just the wealth they accumulate, but the power they can buy with that wealth, keeping policies in place that benefit the best off among us. And if you enjoy Bryce's Pieces and me talking about Bryce's Pieces... Uh, if you are in New York, you can see Bryce and I on April 28th as guests of our friends John and Molly Neffel as we record Radio Dispatch Live that evening at Le Poisson Rouge. More details at the Descent website. That is our show for today. As always, thank you to Natasha Lewis for editing us, Descent for hosting us. Send us your thoughts, your questions, your plans for starting a student union at your school or a strike at your workplace to belabored at descentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored and we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org and join us online using hashtag belabored. 